Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On June 24th of this year, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization and overruled the nearly 50-year-old precedent Roe v. Wade. And in doing so, the court took away the constitutional right to abortion. This decision was not a surprise. The makeup of the conservative-leaning Supreme Court strongly suggested that Roe would be overturned. And if there were any questions, Justice Alito's draft opinion, which was leaked in May, confirmed that the court would strike down Roe. Although anticipated, the decision has been devastating to the reproductive rights community and raises many questions about women's rights in this country. On tonight's show, we're gonna talk about the Dobbs decision and the state of reproductive rights in this country and in our state. We have joining us for this discussion, Susanna Birdsong, the General Counsel and Vice President of Compliance for Planned Parenthood South Atlantic, and Christy Gronke, the Legal Director of the ACLU of North Carolina. Thank you both for joining us this evening. We appreciate you taking time. We know how very busy you are um, right now. Thanks for having us. So before we talk about the Dobbs decision, so both of you work for uh, two organizations that are about advocacy and promoting the rights of individuals. And, you know, many of our listeners are familiar with your organizations, but may not be familiar with some of the specifics and the work that you do and the broad range of the work that you all do. And so first I'm gonna ask each of you to share um, a little bit about your organizations. And so Susanna, let's go ahead and and start with you. Um, And if you could share a little bit about Planned Parenthood. Yeah, great, thanks April. Um, So Planned Parenthood South Atlantic, is a multi-state affiliate of Planned Parenthood, the national organization. So we do engage in advocacy at the legislature and during electoral cycles through our 501c4 arm, Planned Parenthood Votes South Atlantic. Um, But we also operate 14 health centers across a four state region in South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia and provide all types of healthcare to patients in those state, including abortion. Um, And nine of those 14 health centers are located in the state of North Carolina. Um, And so, you know, we are grappling with the results of of Dobbs, both on the advocacy side of what, what we do next and also in the real right now, moment to moment, sort of operational considerations for um, providing abortion care across these four states. Great, thank you. And Christy, the ACLU. 
Sure. So the ACLU of North Carolina, we're a state affiliate of the national ACLU, and we focus on enforcing and protecting the civil rights of North Carolinians under both federal and state uh, constitutions and, and laws. Um, and so reproductive freedom is certainly a huge part of that and, and uh, reproductive autonomy. Um, but we also work on all, all sorts of constitutional issues from free speech to eradication of racial discrimination or gender discrimination, particularly um, when we're looking at uh, racial disparities in the criminal legal system. Okay. All right. Thank you. And before we get into the Dobbs decision, can you two um, share with our audience what the state of the law was with respect to reproductive rights and abortion rights prior to Dobbs? And so, of course, we had the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, and then we also had the Casey decision. Um, and so wh what, what did the law provide uh, the constitutional law provide based on Supreme Court decisions prior to Dobbs. And Susanna, why don't we start with you? Sure. So um, Roe v. Wade is sort of the bedrock, is the bed, not sort of, is the bedrock um, uh, case that um, established the constitutional right to abortion in 1973. Um, and then, you know, that was later affirmed uh, by Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the early 90s. And so almost 50 years of precedent for seeing a constitutional right to abortion in sort of the line of privacy cases um, that you know, also enshrine the right to contraception and later the right to uh, same-sex marriage there are several cases that sort of stem from that same line, that same privacy line. Um, and those are the cases that we've relied upon that have provided sort of the federal safety net of the floor of what is constitutionally um, protected and thus what can be um, really has limited what can be regulated and prohibited up until now until the Dobbs decision. And I'll let Christy fill in what I'm missing there. Yeah, I think that's the, the overview. I would also just add that um, you'll see in the Dobbs decision itself, um, sort of great criticism of two aspects of, of the Casey and the Roe decision. First of all, this concept of undue burden, that laws that place an undue burden on somebody's right to obtain abortion care are um, unconstitutional. And also this question of a, about whether um, constitution, whether the constitution protects a right to abortion pre quote viability, and that's supposed to balance that standard was supposed to balance the state's interest in you know unborn life with the interest of the parent who was carrying the child, the, the in those cases a, a woman, and, and so I think that very um, those those lines have basically been stripped away now, um, and so we're seeing a free for all of what states can do, which I'm sure we're going to get to, to discuss in more depth. Mm -hmm. Now, I know both of you were um, aware when the, you know, draft Alito, Justice Alito's draft opinion was leaked in May, and we all kind of knew that uh, that was probably a really good indication of what his majority opinion would look like. Um, but still, when the decision came down, can you share your 
impression when the Supreme Court's decision became final? I am like tearing up right now thinking about it. Um, I was, you know, I was monitoring the Supreme Court's website on last Friday morning because they had added that decision day um, midweek. And we are now at the point in the term, we were at the point in the term when they add decision days throughout the week and they're um, trying to just get to the end of the term. And so I was monitoring um, SCOTUS blog and the Supreme Court website, but I was honestly not expecting it to come down on Friday morning. I thought that they were going to wait until the very last day in the last case. And um, so I was actually talking to another lawyer who works for Planned Parenthood in another state, and we were talking through some operational considerations, you know, in light of the decision to come and paused at 1010 to look at which case was about to drop and it was Dobbs and um, my heart just sank, even though I knew that, you know, we'd seen the draft leak and um, I knew what it was likely to say, actually seeing the words on the page um, and knowing that it was the final opinion was heartbreaking um, because I knew what it meant immediately for people trying to access abortion care all over the country, um, including in our region. And, you know, that started on Friday morning. Um, and just having a right that you have relied upon for your entire life stripped away um, by um, by that conservative court was was heartbreaking and will continue to be something that I am processing. Clearly, I'm processing it in the moment right now um, for a long time to come. I mean, our reaction at the ACLU was very similar. It's not a surprise, but it's a gut punch. And um, I think all of us felt that there was just, as much as we were prepared for this and we knew it was coming, there's no way to prepare for the impact that this is going to have on real people, um, and the, the, which is just devastating. Um, so that's, I think, where we're all sitting right now. Well, for the education of, of, of our audience, uh, can, can the two of you talk about the, the legal foundation that undergirded the uh, Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade? And what were the, uh, the legal uh, principles that led the court to the decision that it entered in Roe versus Wade. So Christy, you wanna start? Sure, I think um, Roe versus Wade really laid out um, the, the case for and, and the articulation of a right to privacy, which includes the right of people of, of all genders to make decisions in consultation with their doctors, private medical decisions about things that will affect their lives. But I think particularly as reaffirmed in Casey that this right went deeper to understand that um, part of the essential, an essential part of the autonomy of human beings and, and to some extent the equality of women. And keep in mind by the time Casey came around, you had Sandra Day O'Connor on the court, um, by no means a, a liberal, but um, a woman who very much understood what was at stake, I think in, in terms of eradicating the, the right to abortion care. And, and you see an articulation of 
um, this right to privacy being absolutely critical to personhood and what it means to be a full person and to have a right to control your body, um, particularly for, for women and to control the destiny of your lives. And this is some of the language that, you know, Alito in his decision, Justice Alito in, in the Dobbs decision actually mocks and takes to task the, the idea that individuals in the United States should have a right to control their own destiny and fulfill what they think a, a life should look like. He mocks that language and said it's nowhere to be found in the constitution. And, you know, the, the Casey and Roe decisions really locate this in the 14th Amendment, the notion that due process is more than just fair procedures. It's about certain very personally um, important liberties that all of us assume that we, we should have. It's part of being human in a democracy. Um, but it's also um, emanating from other parts of the Constitution, just as an essential part of all of our liberties, of all our constitutional rights, we must have a right to control our own bodies. Um, in, in what, what is called the penumbra. And again, that sort of language is something that uh, Alito sort of takes to task and, and mocks, frankly, in a way that, that seems unnecessarily cruel, if you ask me. Right. Susanna? I don't know that I have anything substantive to add to that. That was a great summary. Um, and I, I just would echo that I agree that the way that um, the majority opinion in Dobbs takes to task and takes down um, Roe and Casey and this constitutional right to privacy that encompasses the right to have an abortion um, was really jarring um, to read because it is it does make a mockery of of that principle. What what happens now? to this notion of, uh, of privacy as a uh, fundamental right, even though it is not enumerated uh, per se within the, uh, the Constitution. Does this decision in uh, Dobbs impact the uh, viability of that privacy notion that the court relied upon uh, to, uh, to establish the uh, Roe versus Wade opinion? Krista, you can... Oh, well, I think there is an interesting dance in the opinion that is occurring. Um, uh, and it's it's a frightening dance. I should, by characterizing it as interesting, I, I don't mean to minimize it. Um, what you're seeing in the majority opinion is Alito's claim that this is just about abortion, that abortion is unique because it involves the, the unborn life interest, the state's interest in unborn life. Um, and so he is attempting to say that this will not go any farther. However, when you look at the reasoning of the decision, which very much um, doubts that any um, right that would not have been understood by the founders, he calls it deeply rooted in our country's um, history and traditions, he rejects the notion that any right that is not specifically articulated in the constitution that is not deeply rooted in our country's history and traditions. Let's all stop to think about what that means. That means a time when white men <laughs> controlled everything and you know, uh, black people could not vote, uh, women could not vote. Um, he, he rejects the idea that any such rights um, could just be sort of uh, read into the constitution. So that is very, very troubling for a number of rights that we depend on, be it to contraception, be it to the right to marriage, uh, marry whoever you choose, the right to sexual privacy, uh, terribly um, demoralizing to, to see that. But again, he claims it's limited to abortion. You see 
you know, I, I have to say again, Thomas, Thomas's concurrence comes out as being truthful about what this decision could really mean. He says very clearly, we're, I think we should talk about these precedents about birth control, about marriage, and whether they can withstand um, this analysis that I, I think is correct in the majority decision. So let me um, pass it over to Suzanne. I just noticed there was a uh, time check here. Okay, well, this is the uh, Legal Eagle uh, review, and uh, we're going to have to take our break. Uh, right now, we're talking with uh, Frisky Gronke, who is uh, with the uh, North Carolina NAACP, and Susanna uh, Birdsong, who is with the uh, Planned Parenthood. Uh, and we're talking about uh, the recent Dobbs decision uh, that uh, invalidated uh, the uh, abortion rights uh, in uh, this country, a uh, decision that is having a profound impact on uh, where we are now and promises to have continuing impact on uh, where it is that uh, in this country. We want you to stay with us as we continue this uh, discussion. We'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCC Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue our discussion about the uh, recent uh, Dobbs decision uh, entered by the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, that uh, basically uh, has scuttled uh, abortion rights, reproductive freedom rights uh, in this country and threatened other rights uh, which uh, flow from this notion of uh, privacy. Uh, and uh, just as we uh, took our break, uh, Susanna was going to uh, join us and talk about the uh, dissent uh, in the uh, Dobbs case. And I guess added uh, to that is the uh, comment by uh, Justice uh, Clarence Thomas uh, regarding a uh, continuing review of these enumerated rights uh, among which is the uh, right of interracial uh, marriage, uh, one that he is in. 
Uh, so I don't know if he's looking for a quickie divorce or what, but, uh, but Suzanne, could you go on and talk about uh, the, uh, the dissent, uh, the three uh, justices uh, who uh, dissented to this, this decision? Yeah, so, you know, the majority opinion, as Christy noted, goes to great pains to say this doesn't implicate the other cases that stem from the privacy right in the Constitution. This doesn't implicate contraception. This doesn't implicate um, same-sex marriage. Um, we're not dealing with those cases um, because this is a this is different. Abortion is different because of the um, the interest in potential life. Um, and Clarence Thomas's concurrence, as as um, Christy said, really says, actually, I do think we need to reconsider all of those other cases that stem from this privacy right. This privacy right is on shaky constitutional footing. Um, and, you know, the dissent really just says, calls out the majority opinion for, you know, I don't think that you're being fair and truthful in, in what this decision means and what this decision can mean down the line when those cases, when those questions are squarely before the court. Um, what, is the, what is the down the line consequence to all of those other rights that stem from the same notion of privacy in the constitution if this bedrock Roe v. Wade decision that has been the law of the land for almost 50 years can be overturned, surely all the rest of it can too. And we should be very watchful for that and of the harm that that can do um, to this country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll get into the the substance of the dissent's um, arguments and, and legal points, um, but can both of you kind of comment on what has allowed us to be where we are right now in terms of the makeup of the court, right? And so, you know, when I read Justice Alito's majority opinion and, and Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, and there are statements like, you know, abortion is different. We're not talking about these other rights that are hinged upon substantive due process. You can't help but go back to the confirmation hearings um, and representations that were made by recent nominees about their view of Roe v. Wade. Yet here we are now with Roe v. Wade having, Wade having been overturned. But the whole you know, nature of how the court has been populated, particularly when we're looking at the three junior justices. Um, so Neil Gorsuch and uh, him filling Scalia's seat, even though President Obama was the president when that seat became available. When we think about Brett Kavanaugh, we think about the issues surrounding his nomination. And then of course, Amy Coney Barrett and her um, the the kind of pushing through her getting on the court, even though her situation um, or Justice Ginsburg's seat was, you know, there was even less time available than when Justice Scalia's seat was um, uh, became vacant. So can you all kind of talk about how those circumstances have allowed us to be at a place where Roe could be overturned? And Susanna, why don't we start with you? Um, sure. I mean, it is remarkable um, when I think about, you know, 
the court has heard three abortion cases in the last six years. In 2016, they heard a case um, called Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt that basically struck down a bunch of um, abortion clinic regulations called targeted regulation of abortion provider type laws, trap laws um, in the state of Texas that had shut down a, half of the clinics in Texas. Um, and you know the court in that case said, uh, if a state says that they have an interest in protecting the health and safety of people who are seeking abortion care, and that's why they're regulating it in this way, then they actually need to show that there's a close nexus, a close tie between those regulations and actually protecting health and safety. And they cannot regulate abortion out of existence just because they don't like abortion. And so it was this reaffirmation of, of the bedrock principles in Roe and Casey, but also just really outlining what states can't do in terms of regulating abortion um, that make it inaccessible to access and make it a right in name only. And so that felt like huge forward progress for our movement because we had been dying by a thousand cuts across the country as state legislatures pass laws restricting access to abortion in all sorts of various ways. And then in 2020, the court took another case very similar to Whole Woman's Health out of Louisiana and reaffirmed what they had said in Whole Woman's Health. And this is, you're seeing the court change, right? In the Whole Woman's Health case, Kennedy was the swing vote. In June Medical, the case that they took in 2020, John Roberts was the swing vote. And then in the Dobbs case that just came down last week, uh, Brett Kavanaugh is the swing. I don't know who I don't know who the swing vote is. Um, Neil Gorsuch. It is a much more conservative. All to say, it is a much more conservative court in just the last three years than we were dealing with um, just a handful of years before. And that is evident when you look at the abortion cases specifically. But you can point to any number of other cases too, when you see this reaffirmation of the right to abortion and this curtailing of the regulations that states can place on access in 2016 and 2020. And then in 2022, a complete repeal of the right um, and the constitutional protection. And you know the dissent points out really plainly, there is nothing that has changed except for the composition of this court. And that could not be more true. And it is something that I have just, um, it makes you bang your head against the wall. Yeah, Christy, did you have anything that you wanted to add about the, the composition of the court, how we got here and how that plays such an important role when we're thinking about um, constitutional jurisprudence, actually, and not just as it relates to abortion, but but all kind of cases in which the Supreme Court will render decisions about what our Constitution means and what rights are afforded through the Constitution. I think Susanna said it well. I mean, I think the only thing I'd add is that it seems that with these latest three additions to the court, um, well, not latest, sorry, I, I forgot about Justice um, Jackson, but I think that with that, uh, with the three Trump appointees to the court, there is a very much a sense that uh, we are 
we are able, or the conservative right is saying, we are able to achieve this long held desire to push our version of constitutional originalism and constitutional history on the entire country. And it's a fruition of years and years of a movement um, that got to this point. And they are very much delivering for their constituents in a way that when you look at their Senate confirmation hearings, where they assured us that indeed Roe was settled precedent and they understood that it was important to many people, they're not going to abide by that. They're gonna deliver the goods uh, politically. And, and that is incredibly um, troubling. Where, where do we go from here? You know, as a result of, uh, of the Dobbs opinion, which takes out from the federal uh, protection, uh, this uh, uh, reproductive freedom, or at least as it relates to abortion, what happens now in the, uh, in the various states? What's the impact, the effect of uh, that uh, decision. Why don't we start with uh, Susanna uh, here and then go to Kristen. This takes it back to the states. Um, and what we have seen already is um, several states banning abortion as soon as the decision came down. We expect several more to do so in the coming days and weeks. And I think ultimately, depending on sort of how you're Looking at the laws, roughly half of the states in the country will either completely ban or um, really restrict access to abortion. Um, and so, you know, the fight will be state by state to try to maintain or um, claw back access for people who nothing has changed about whether people need abortions, whether people want abortions. Um, people still need and want that care and whether they will be able to access it and how safely they will be able to access it will very much depend on their zip code and the state that they live in. Chrissy? Yeah, I think that we face um, a particular moment here in North Carolina, which is absolutely critical because we are one of the few states in the South where there is some measure of abortion access at present, where we have a governor who has held the line to um, veto anti-abortion legislation, um, but you know, we don't have a it, it, we don't have a necessarily, we don't have a pro-choice majority in our general assembly and any election uh, looking forward, the, the, next, the le next election is going to be critical to determining, first of all, do we have a general assembly um, that is going to be able to overrule any, um, any uh, gubernatorial veto, but we also have uh, justices and judges who are up for election, our North Carolina Supreme Court, um, Court of Appeals, uh, Superior Court. And so those are uh, judges that could be deciding whether there is a state constitutional right to abortion. Now the fight goes to the states and generally speaking, and this is certainly true in North Carolina, state constitutions offer broader protections of the federal constitution. My um, my team and um, Susanna's uh, colleagues actually are involved in a case that sets out to argue this very point that we uh, as North Carolinians have a state constitutional right to abortion care. Um, but everything hinges on the next election in terms of whether that becomes a reality or is, um, is established for the, for the next generation. And one of the things, um, Susanna, that, that you had mentioned was um, you know, whether you're able to take advantage of 
abortion um, access depends on where you live, what state you live, what zip code, what resources you have. Uh, Can you talk about how in those states where abortion has been already banned or will be banned or severely restricted, the impact that that has on communities, particularly those communities that don't have financial resources? Yeah, and this is, again, something that, you know, that the dissent pointed out in Dobbs and also it is the reality that we know the people who are most most negatively impacted, most harmed by abortion bans are people with the least resources to travel out of state, um, people who um, live in more rural areas, people of color, um, people who already have children and childcare responsibilities, um, people with jobs that they don't have, the, they don't have schedule flexibility. Um, all of these things sort of build upon each other um, to create a scenario for people who, you know, if they live in a state where abortion is banned, the notion that they could just travel even to the next state over. But for a lot of these folks, we're not talking about the next state over. We're talking about six states away. Um, is just is impossible. Um, and so that is something that I think uh, is heartbreaking to think about um, because what you're then talking about is forced pregnancy, forced birth, in most cases, forced parenthood, um, and the attendant consequences of all of that for people who don't have the ability to choose what's best for them and for their families and um, for the rest of their lives. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the U.S. Supreme Court decision, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which has overruled Roe v. Wade, a nearly 50-year-old precedent. And the court in doing so has taken away the constitutional right to abortion. We've been talking with in here in our Zoom studio, Susanna Birdsong, who is the general counsel and vice president of compliance with Planned Parenthood South Atlantic and Christy Gronke, who is the legal director at ACLU North Carolina. We're gonna have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently A2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. 
Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us. As we continue this discussion uh, about uh, the Dobbs uh, decision, decision that is certainly uh, heartbreaking uh, to, uh, to many uh, people, it is one that has uh, received widespread repudiation from uh, people around the uh, country, uh, demonstrations all over the place with uh, people showing their uh, uh, disagreement with the uh, decision that the uh, U.S. Supreme Court has reached. Uh, in light of that, uh, Christy, can you kind of talk about what is the state of the law in North Carolina right now uh, for people who uh, have an interest in, uh, in, a, in an abortion or are considering uh, that uh, moving forward? Yeah. So abortion remains um, available and legal in North Carolina. However, there are um, certain restrictions on um, that right. And uh, these existed uh, prior to the decision in Dobbs. And they are the subject of a lawsuit that um, I think I mentioned earlier that is being litigated by Planned Parenthood and um, ACLU and the Center for Reproductive Rights. And those restrictions, for example, uh, basically uh, have created um, the restrictions that are being challenged have created unequal treatment of abortion as a medical service and a medical care as distinguished from other forms of medical care. So for example, telemedicine, we're all becoming very familiar with telemedicine in many aspects of, of our lives, but you cannot have, um, there's a ban on telemedicine when it comes to um, abortion medication. Um, and we are trying to uh, seek strike that down as well as many other restrictions on the way that uh, um, clinics that provide abortion care operate that are not actually necessary to preserve anyone's health to ensure proper safety. They're just put there to burden abortion clinics um, and to burden people's ability to obtain abortions. There's also biased uh, counseling that has to occur um, and a 72 hour waiting period, which is one of the um, longest in the country. So basically putting a lot of psychological pressure and coercion on people who are going in to seek an abortion, trying to get them to change their mind. Um, in a way that is extremely burdensome and highly, um, highly problematic, and and um, it really interferes with people's ability to make um, fair and uh, well reasoned, well informed decisions about their rights uh, to exercise an abortion. So these are the things that we are challenging currently under the. Um, that exists under North Carolina law, but certainly there's the specter of additional restrictions and the legislature has signaled, for example, that they want to reinstate a 20 week ban that was in fact struck down permanently enjoined by a federal court. Um, so there are some very um, imminent concerns that abortion access is going to be restricted and um, the legislature will be trying to do that um, in light of uh, a governor's veto uh, power. Well, under the North Carolina Constitution, what provisions uh, exist for the North Carolina court uh, to find that there is or determine that there is a right uh, to an abortion in North Carolina where the U.S. Supreme Court has held that it is not something that is viable under the uh, federal Constitution? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so looking at our North Carolina um, Declaration of Rights, um, these include a right to due process, which must include that right uh, that we, we although it was rejected uh, 
by the Supreme Court at the federal level in this instance has to be a right to bodily autonomy and to controlling one's uh, reproductive freedom. Um, also equal protection, we would argue, and, and I think it's been shown that for women to be able to participate fully in education, in professions, in all the things that are necessary for women to be um, enjoy some sort of equality in society um, and some sort of freedom that they have to have be able to control their reproductive health and their reproductive care. And so that's an important right. Um, we are also challenging um, these restrictions. Uh, you know, North Carolina, Carolina, the North Carolina Constitution protects as one of its first rights, the right to fruits of one's own labor. And for medical practitioners who want to provide these services, being denied the ability to do so under the Constitution and subjected to unreasonably burdensome restrictions that don't apply to other medical services and other types of lawful medical care is inappropriate and um, barred by our Constitution. So those are the main constitutional arguments that we're bringing in, in, in um, under state law. Okay, now legislatively, are there efforts uh, underway or will there be efforts underway at the legislature to uh, enshrine some protections, uh, uh, depending upon, of course, what happens in the upcoming uh, election? Well, I think, as I've said before, I think November is absolutely critical, but I do see that um, there is certainly interest in promoting um, abortion rights affirmatively in the state legislature, in many state legislatures. I think it remains to be seen um, what will be happening in North Carolina, um, particularly given uh, that there seems to be a pretty solid anti-abortion majority um, in the in the General Assembly, whether we can sort of overcome that, whether there will be bills filed to send a statement that this is a critical issue, um, you know, that may already be in the works. Um, but yes, I, I think there's going to be some legislation, both from people who want to restrict abortion and people who want to ensure that access is preserved, if not expanded in this state. Can you talk about the need for federal legislation in this mm. space? And so right now, of course, as you've talked about and Susanna has talked about, we've got this patchwork. So depending on what state you're in, you've got access to certain medical procedures and in others you don't. And so if we want to see um, consistency across the nation, since we don't have the constitutional protection currently, the next thing that we need to think about is federal um, regulation. Can you talk about what we can maybe hope for at the federal level or what we need to advocate for at the federal level? Yeah, well, both Joe Biden on one side and, and Mitch McConnell on the other have said that they don't think that uh, federal legislation can occur to codify Roe versus Wade in this moment because of the filibuster um, and, and the need that we have to have 60 votes in the Senate to get this done. Um, my understanding is there was, I think, already legislation to try to codify Roe Ro at the federal level and it failed, um, which I think people knew it would, unfortunately. Um, but, but I think that you're going to see after November, depending on what happens, um, legislative movements, as I said, with North Carolina in, in both directions. Um, and I think what we're going to see, uh, what, what are the possibilities for expanding or protecting Roe, obviously uh, saying in a statute that um, Roe's holding is essentially embodied in federal law. Now, 
Anytime we have a regime change in terms of political party or simply orientation toward abortion, let's remember there are some anti-abortion Democrats. Uh, there used to be some, some pro-choice Republicans. I'm not sure how, how true that is anymore, but that's certainly possible. But anytime you have a change in leadership, either in the, in the um, Congress or in the presidency, that could be changed. And so um, it, it is more fragile than a constitutional right. I think we all understand that when it's just a federal statute, but that's one possibility. The other thing which I think Kavanaugh's concurrence actually sort of tipped at a little bit is this notion of the right to travel to other states to receive abortion care. Now, Suzanne explained why that is not an option for so many people, particularly people who are lower income, particularly young people, um, people who are already parents and have to work um, jobs that aren't flexible. But, but that is going to be, I think, a focus of concern is making sure that people can, in fact, lawfully travel. If, if abortion is forbidden in their state, lawfully travel to another state, come back to their home state and not be prosecuted for seeking abortion care where it's legal in other states. And there is a Supreme Court precedent that should support that right. Um, Kavanaugh signaled that he thinks the Constitution is neutral on the question of abortion. And so this people should be able to, to exercise their right to travel. But Congress could certainly lend some support to that by enacting a law to codify that as well. And that would seem to be within their powers, particularly under the Commerce Clause. And so that kind of raises the the devastating nature of this opinion, um, as you and Susanna both talked about, uh, there are those that were um, planning on taking advantage and relying upon having access to abortions who on one day they had it, the next day they didn't. And so what suggestions do you have for individuals who find themselves in a situation where they wanted to take advantage of, um, of an abortion, the, the you know, right to abortion, and, and now no longer have access in their states? And, and as you comment on that and provide your thoughts, um, there have been a lot of individuals and companies that have been offering support. So there are companies that are saying, if you need funding, we'll provide funding, we'll provide leave, we will allow you to go to a state that provides for abortion. But that raises some concerns in terms of, again, when we're thinking about privacy. Uh, there are individuals that are saying, you can come sleep on my couch, right? So there are, are those that are offering assistance, but the question is, is that the best course of action for those that want to avail themselves of um, abortion medical services, it, even if it's not available in their state and they do want to go to another state? What are your, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think what you're describing is a patchwork of people who are certainly well-intentioned and try to help. I mean, I think the corporate effort to um, provide employee benefits essentially for people seeking abortion care is um, helpful. I do question how many of those corporations have donated to anti-choice, anti-abortion candidates in the past um, because it suited their economic interests to do so. So I, I think I approach it with a little bit of skepticism, um, but certainly it's better than nothing for people who are fortunate enough to have those jobs and those benefits. I, I don't think, unfortunately, that you're going to be talking about the you know, the um, Black and Latinx women who are cutting up chicken at the chicken processing plant um, when you talk about these kinds of benefits. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think that that will happen um, in the way that it should. Um, you know, and I certainly self, um, 
communities coming together to provide informal support and services, donating to abortion funds, providing people with transportation and housing, all of that is, is wonderful. We, we all need to be taking care of ourselves. I think though that you're gonna see some state laws that are going to potentially make people in the states who are trying to provide these, these uh, this assistance or people in banned states who are trying to provide such assistance, targets of prosecution um, and lawsuits uh, charged with aiding and abetting crimes. And you're really gonna see, I think it is, it's been said before that this is going to be a mass criminalization event. And we all know what that's going to look like. It's going to look like particularly poor women, particularly black women, I think subjected to the arm of the state in prosecuting and investing the, investigating them as they may try to seek reproductive care elsewhere. So all of these, I don't mean to denigrate the efforts that are being made, particularly by community members trying to support other, other members of our community and women trying to help other women, but it's, um, it's not gonna be enough. I think that, that, that we're facing some really scary, a scary situation. Do, do you envision that the North Carolina General Assembly will seek to uh, join the uh, those state those red states that have uh, completely outlawed uh, abortion? Hmm. I um, suspect that if there will not go completely in that direction, that there will be the six week. Um, as going as low as six weeks as we're seeing in South Carolina and some other neighboring states. I, I, I'm not as tuned into the policy piece of this as my colleagues in the policy department are, but I suspect that may be where they would go, um, which is already a, 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 you know, devastating because so many people don't even know after six weeks um, from their last menstrual period that they're pregnant. Uh, mm -hmm. They may not know. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, people are not in a position to plan out their future uh, in this regard, not knowing exactly what the laws are going to be or what uh, what changes uh, will be uh, made uh, going forward. So it's very important that there is some uh, stability uh, in uh, in what the law is, and uh, that's one of the things that that I'm really concerned about with respect to the Dobbs decision. It's yes. kind of uh, pushed aside this notion of precedent and the uh, reliance on precedent uh, moving forward and if they can uh, uh, shut uh, this uh, notion of precedent in this type case, then uh, they can also do that in other cases uh, such that uh, you know we're not able to predict uh, what the law is and how it is to be uh, applied going forward. And I know that you, uh, the ACLU is regularly in, in this business. What, what's your uh, response uh, to that? Oh, I think it's very chilling for those of us who are relying on precedents, particularly any precedents, as you point out, having to do with substantive due process, which you know involves a whole bunch of rights that are essential to freedom, yet not written explicitly in the Constitution. You know, um, that that is very concerning to think that that may be up for grabs um, in this this post precedent world we find ourselves in and post stare decisis. So, yes, for political reasons, I think that uh, the court in Dobbs discarded uh, with the Roe and Casey precedents. They said it was egregiously wrong. Uh, they said that it was so poorly reasoned and weak. Um, and this was their reason for getting rid of it. Well, they're going to say that about every decision they disagree with. So yes, I, I think we're we're going to see a fire hose, and, and it is tremendously um, concerning to think about what may be on the the chopping block next. 
Because immediately I thought about uh, the, uh, although it's not in this privacy area necessarily, but uh, Miranda, which is a prophylactic uh, rule which impacts uh, everyone who is uh, caught up in the criminal uh, process, or the exclusionary rule, which is not uh, enumerated in the uh, in the Constitution. So you can take that uh, uh, further and say, well, here is another example of why we need to get rid of this uh, particular uh, principle. That's uh, that's this. So it's scary. Uh, it all, is. All Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the decision that was issued just a few days ago, in fact, said, well, you can't sue for violation of your Miranda rights. So and I believe it was that Justice Alito as well. Um, so it is that chipping away of, of, of existing rights, um, whether rapidly or slowly that we're going to see. Yeah, Christy, one of the things I wanted to get your impression or your thoughts on is you mentioned that this is a mass criminalization event. So you've got, you know, conduct and the exercise of rights one day is protected, constitutionally protected, and now it's criminalized the next day. And this is also a completely different society uh, from a technological standpoint than what existed in 1973 when the court recognized a constitutional right to abortion. And one of the things that we have today is you know, data, like all of our information um, where we, you know, what our search history is, where we have been, um, our location information, all of that information is an, out and available. And there are um, apps that, you know, will track, you know, we've got the period tracker apps and the menstrual um, cycle apps. And so all of this data is being accumulated. And so we're also in a situation where, um, you know, prosecutors and law enforcement agencies are using this data to identify people and what they're doing. And so there's that risk and danger as well. And, and there are a lot of folks that don't even recognize how closely they are being tracked. Can you talk about how that opens up another area of extreme concern about um, women and their um, being targeted? and their conduct being criminalized in one state, even though their conduct, that same exact conduct is permissible in another state. Yeah, I think it is very worrisome. And I think um, given you know the propensity that we um, have all been encouraged to share our, about our lives on social media, um, you know, I think that there is a, a, a deep downside to that. And um, unfortunately that it may in fact result in um, criminal investigation or prosecution is a chilling, chilling thought. So unfortunately, um, the way that people maybe have taken to social media to, you know, and, and there's some discussion here about whether how people who are miscarrying are going to be impacted or people experiencing, you know, who need um, abortion care or have issues with the pregnancy um, that that are suddenly going to be scrutinized. And if I just think about posting on social media, um, how that could be used against them. So I think everyone who is pregnant, thinking about becoming pregnant, worried about becoming pregnant, uh, needs to be very vigilant and thoughtful about how they um, are participating in social media and are um, using their electronic devices because tech that could 
potentially be subject to to review um, at some point. And I think this is going to be where the Fourth Amendment needs to kick in. That is very specific. It's supposed to protect us against unreasonable searches and seizures, including of our phones and our electronic data. And we're just going to have to hope that courts will hold the line there. But I'm not terribly, terribly optimistic on that. So yes, I think there is great reason for concern. I believe that there are a number of reproductive rights organizations publishing guidance and advice to people on what to do and what to say and who to talk to and how to talk to them. Um, and I think that um, I would definitely um, encourage people to seek those out from reputable um, you know, uh, pro-choice organizations such as Planned Parenthood and um, Center for Constitutional Rights. Excuse me, Center for Reproductive Rights. All right, so we have uh, just a, a few minutes left. And, and so um, in addition to what you just suggested in terms of organizations to reach out to, are there any other suggestions that you have for individuals who had wanted to avail themselves of, um, uh, of abortion medical services, what they can do at this point, and also for those that want to contribute and support um, you know, the advocacy for abortion rights. Yeah, um, so our, our website um, contains some guidance on different organizations and what kinds of things they're doing. But here in North Carolina, um, you know, and so I would encourage people to look at the ACLU of North Carolina website for guidance on different organizations they can donate to. But there's the Carolina Abortion Fund, which is, which is going to assist and um, help people with, and already does, in fact, assist people in paying for abortions and abortion-related travel expenses. Um, I think Planned Parenthood uh, Center for um, Reproductive Rights provide good guidance on that. So those are some organizations. Sister Song, which is a reproductive rights organization um, run by women of color, I think is another great resource. But definitely um, our website, I believe, contains a, an extensive list of organizations that you can um, be encouraged to donate to and support their efforts. And that's ACLUofNorthCarolina.org. Great. Well, thank you so much. And unfortunately, we're out of time. But we'd like to thank our guest, Christy Gronke, who is a legal director of ACLU of North Carolina, Susanna Birdsong, general counsel and vice president of compliance with Planned Parenthood South Atlantic. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and learned something about what you can do as a result of the stripping away of women's rights. If you have any questions or if there are episodes you'd like for us to consider, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.